Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to Living History. Thank you for all the feedback you've given us about recent episodes. We've uh, brought some very interesting chapters of history to light recently. And thank you everyone who jumps on the social media to reply and tell us how much you've been enjoying it. I'm sure you'll be enjoying this one as well because it's one that I know is very close to a lot of people's hearts. We're going to talk about World War II, one of the most popular topics we do on living history, specifically the Australian involvement in Bomber Command. And joining us to talk about that is someone who's been on the program before. It's Dr. Lachlan Grant from the Australian War Memorial. Lachlan, thanks for joining us again. Hi, Matt. Great to be on. Mate, before we get started about Bomber Command, we were chatting just before the interview about some of the exciting work you're doing at the War Memorial. Why don't you just share with us exactly what uh, what you're up to at the moment? There's some good stuff going on. Uh, absolutely. So I'm currently working on the team that's uh, going to work on the enhancement of the Bomber Command displays for uh, the new, as part of the War Memorial's development, but also working on the Battle of Milne Bay. So, of course, the Memorial's famous Kitty Hawk Polly the uh, Hargo tank, and also um, one of the other iconic exhibitions at the War Memorial that will be obviously part of the development is the uh, Japanese midget submarine that attacks Sydney Harbour. How long is that redevelopment going to take? When are we going to see these fantastic new exhibitions on display? Uh, the new exhibitions for uh, Anzac Hall are due to be on display in 2023. That's good work, mate. I'm sure everyone's looking forward to seeing those uh, those uh, new exhibitions and exactly the stories that they tell. You mentioned Bomber Command, which is why I've got you on here today. It's a, a really fascinating chapter of the Second World War. I have a personal involvement in it because my great-uncle was killed as part of Bomber Command in 1943. But um, just a really important story of Australia's contribution to the Second World War. Absolutely. It's one of the um, one of the key stories for Australians in the Second World War. And one of the reasons for that is cause, because casualties were so high amongst Australian air crew. We've... We've estimated, uh, historians estimate about 10,000 members of the Royal Australian Air Force served in Bomber Command during the war, and we know that over 4,100 were killed. So an extraordinary, an extraordinary loss rate of more than one in three. And if you put this in another way, the, those who served in Bomber Command represent 2% of Australians to serve overseas, but they represented 20% of all Australian combat deaths in the war. Just extraordinary. Obviously, uh, one of the most dangerous jobs you could do in the war. And I, the thing that always strikes me about the Second World War as Australians when we look back on it is we talk about our contribution to the war in Europe and North Africa in the early days of the war. 
But then we focus on the Pacific, and there, there seems to be this narrative that Australia committed to fighting the, the Germans and the Italians early in the war, but then swung our focus entirely towards fighting the Japanese. But of course, we always had people in Europe. We always had, particularly in Bomber Command, we always had a very strong contribution to the war in the European theatre, didn't we? Oh, absolutely, Matt. And I've got a theory about this, and I think uh, some of the memory of the Second World War and those campaigns you mentioned in Australia, uh, we've come to focus on the war in the Pacific um, uh, in in recent decades as, uh, you know, as the Republican movement sort of grown in Australia and stories like Bomber Command, where we're very much part of a greater empire story, have perhaps been lost a little bit um, in terms of public memory, where the focus has been very much on campaigns such as uh, Kokoda, where, um, you know, where the defence of Australia is, is at stake and it's very much an Australian story. Well, let's talk a little bit about Australia's contribution to Bomber Command. You mentioned some of those, uh, you know, some of those statistics, but, but how did Australia, was it something that before the war, Australia was always anticipating we would supply a major component of the Air Force in any future war? Or was it a direct result of the outbreak of war that, that led to uh, such a strong contribution to Bomber Command? Well, discussions have been taking place, but it was something that happened very early on in the war. In, in December 1939, at a conference at Ottawa, Australia, New Zealand and Canada um, determined that they would pull together resources to supply air crew to the RAF in, in Europe, specifically to fight against Germany. And this plan was to provide 50,000 trained air crews from around the empire uh, for the RAF each year. And these were the numbers um, it was determined was required to to supply the Air Force in Europe um, to fight against Nazism. And, and at the time that this decision was made, Australia, um, many people in Australia felt that this was actually the biggest contribution that Australia might make to the outcome of the war. And where did these men and women who ended up joining the Air Force, where did they come from? Were they people who had an interest in flying? Were they in other branches of the service? Or were they simply civilians who who just joined up and found themselves in the Air Force? Well, they're all volunteers, obviously. The Air Force was a bit of a, a glamour service in the, the, the war. Obviously, aviation was, um, was still, I guess, in its infancy, um, only, only decades old. And, um, many people wanted or dreamt of, of flying, flying an aircraft. And, uh, so those who enlisted in the RAF, um, came from all backgrounds. Uh, there's sometimes a view, or the RAF kind of had their pick and there's sometimes a view that, um, that the, the members of the RAF were more highly educated or came from more technical professions. But um, the research we've done over the years looking at individuals, they, they came from all different backgrounds. They could be farmers or mechanics or, or grocers or they could be clerks or they could be university students, uh, all range of backgrounds. Don Charlwood, who became a navigator, um, said that when when he, he joined the, the, the RAF, uh, he said they all expected, they were all sort of envisaging that they would become Spitfire pilots. Uh, but instead, for those who were destined for Bomber Command, they entered a war entirely different from their expectations. And Charwood said it was one that demanded endurance rather than dash. And this was because going into training schools in Australia, then often in Canada and then in Britain, it would take two years from enlistment uh, through training until you joined an operational squadron. So until you're flying operations, there's two years of training um, from, from that point. So there's huge investment um, in these men. Lockie, were there connections with the Australian Flying Corps that had been established during the First World War or was the RAAF by the time of the Second World War a completely uh, new organisation? Oh, well, it was a completely new organisation. The, the birth of the RAF, the 100th anniversary coming up in March next year, was established in, in 
2021 as its own entity, um, uh, but it, it has it had its birth in the flying core of the First World War. But many of those individuals, um, uh, notable uh, air aces from the First World War, were were commanders and held posts in uh, the Royal Australian Air Force at the time of the outbreak of the Second World War. So, what sort of training could these these men who eventually became the crews of the of the bombers over Europe? What sort of training did they go through in Australia and indeed overseas? Well, uh, there's the different musterings of the crew. So you could um, train as a pilot, so you could train as a wireless operator, train as a navigator, a bomb aimer or an air gunner. They all attempted to train as pilots, but then they would get, depending on their results, they'd get sort of um, shifted off into the different um, technical areas. One thing, um, one thing worth noting is for a lot of these guys, um, at the start of the Second World War, few, few Australians could even drive a motor car. So some of these guys talk about before they flew, ended up flying like the Avro Lancaster, which is the most sophisticated aircraft in, in the, in the British had at that time. Before that, they, all they had driven was a, a, a bicycle. So it's quite, quite incredible that, to think that they didn't even have the skills to drive a motor car when they enlisted in the, Royal Australian Air Force, and here they are training to fly Spitfires, to fly Lancasters, to fly you know Mustangs, um, etc. And they were relatively young as well. I mean, I think we overdo a little bit this idea that all people who go off to war are very, very young. But my experience of the the veterans I was fortunate enough to interview from veteran com- from Bomber Command was that they were, you know, definitely in their early twenties. You know, we, you, you talk about a Lancaster captain who could have been twenty three or twenty four commanding this aircraft. It really quite extraordinary how quickly they went from civilian life to in command of these uh, these sophisticated machines. Yeah, very much. Uh, uh, many of the casualties were, were a very young age, and a lot of those who are flying uh, ops over Germany are in their early 20s. Uh, and part of this was due to um, uh, still having those skills, the, those agility and um, skills and, and um, technical skills that, that help, help them fly. So what sort of aircraft were they flying? Were the Australian contingents flying in Bomber Command? So early on in the war, the Australians are mostly equipped with uh, aircraft like Hamptons and, and Wellingtons, uh, but these were soon uh, were replaced after 1942 with uh, Halifaxes and the four-engined Avro Lancaster. And these are the two heavy bombers which uh, became the backbone of Bomber Command operations from 19, 1942 onwards. Lockie, talk to me about what it was like for these blokes. What was the? I mean, we, we've all heard the stories of the, the huge bombing raids over Dresden and Hamburg, and but what was it? What was a daily life like for these blokes going up in these aircraft and, and launching these attacks over Germany? Well, we have to remember they lived with this statistically daunting prospect of they had to survive thirty combat operations to complete a tour, and with the loss rate so high, the chances of making it through were very slim and only about one in three made it through unscathed. Um, that is not being killed, severely wounded or becoming a prisoner of war. But flying a mission, a mission to Germany could take up to eight hours or more of flying and, and it's flying mostly at night uh, in unpressurised aircraft, uh, ear-splittingly loud because of the four four engines and they're working in cramped spaces and in really in freezing conditions. And one account by uh, uh, by one Australian who served in in a British RAF squadron, 630 squadron, uh, Lionel Rackley. He was a 21-year-old pilot, um, and he described his first mission uh, being one to Berlin, which the, the crew is called the Big City, on 24th of March 1944. And he said 
He learned early in the morning that he was flying an op that night and it was to Berlin. And he said this was the worst time because during the course of the day, you were just in a state of anxiety. And he said this was a really gut-wrenching time. Uh, at takeoff in the evening, he said the engine would tease a bit, uh, would ease a bit because he was um, occupied with, with flying the Lancaster and taking off. But then he said the, the tension would return once they'd crossed the channel and started crossing the European uh, coast. And that's when they start uh, hitting belts of, uh, of flak. Uh, they'd come under attack from enemy night fighters uh, on their way to Berlin. It's just extraordinary tales. It, it's, I mean, combat veterans talk about war is, is hours of tedium followed by minutes of terror. But that's summed up. That was the life of, of airmen, wasn't it? And even the accounts I've read in the First World War in Michael Malkentine's outstanding books about combat in the First World War, Peter Hart's written amazing accounts of First World War combat. That's, that's a, a common thread shared by all airmen is this idea that you'd spend so much time sitting around in safety. You'd be back at base in, in, a, in a safe country. And then the next thing, you'd be in an aircraft over enemy territory with your life you know, hanging by a thread. How did they deal with this incredible level of combat stress? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and even even if you think about it, they're often sitting in darkness in their aircraft, so they don't even really know at times what's going on on around on around them. But um, dealing with with the combat stress and those the strain of operations, they'd often develop uh, individual coping mechanisms. And this is a time if you think about it, air crew along the base, there was always uh, uh, empty beds in the barracks, but these always soon replaced. So the crews themselves, the crew of seven on a Lancaster. For example, they'd become a really tight-knit unit and they could become a little bit detached from what was going on around them in the squadron or um, what else was going on around in the world, but they'd be morale would be really high amongst amongst those seven aircrew. Uh, some might uh, develop a bit of a fatalistic um, outlook, which is understandable, but others developed superstitions or carried lucky charms. And, and a superstition, uh, one one crew I spoke about, um, sorry, I read about recently, uh, the captain uh, had muddy, dirty shoes as they flew their first mission and they came back safely, so he wasn't allowed to polish his shoes for the rest of rest of their tour. But in their spare time between missions, um, you know, they, they had a lot of downtime as well uh, and uh, they were able to go sightseeing around Britain, for example, but they'd also spend a lot of time um, at the pub uh, living life, um, you know, forming relationships with uh, local women. Uh, so... It was a strange, strange war and a strange experience to to um, to others who who might be serving, say, in the desert or in the jungles of uh, of New Guinea. In your research, mate, how did they carry that stress with them after the war? Was it something that stayed with them in a, in a particular way? Did you see, you know, the effects of PT, what we would now call PTSD, on these uh, on these on this air crews, these air crews once they came home? Uh, uh, in terms of after they came home, yeah, of, of course, some of them, um, the stress, stress remained with them. Uh, but one of the, one of the, um, one of the things I think that the crews of Bomber Command experienced in later life is that they developed a lot of skills when they were in the Air Force, um, that they were able to come back and start new lives and start small businesses. And quite a number of pilots uh, end up being employed by sort of Qantas or Australian National Airways after the war. So some of them continue. Um, in the aviation field afterwards, uh, but others will return, return home to to their farms and, and businesses. Talk to me about some of the missions that they flew, because the, the the nature of what Bomber Command was asked to do evolved during the war, and that the types of missions they could be asked to fly changed as well, didn't they? 
Yeah, absolutely. There's a great diversity in the Bomber Command story uh, because of the, the different types of missions. It, uh, at different times, Bomber Command was um, was almost conducting different campaigns, uh, uh, campaigns over the rural valley, for example, um, during the, sort of 1942 and 1943, uh, the big campaign against uh, Berlin uh, from December to March, from December 43 to March 44, which which actually ends in quite a disaster for Bomber Command because the losses are so high, they're, they're unsustainable. And after that point, uh, Bomber Command is uh, tasked with uh, assisting the build-up to the D-Day landings, and it's uh, targeting uh, during those periods uh, transportation, railway hubs uh, to connect um, connect uh, the links to to Normandy, so to prevent uh, German reinforcements from being sent to the battlefront. And actually, actually does a really good job in that role of supporting the ground forces and shows it can. It, when it is tasked with uh, bombing uh, precision targets, it, it can be quite successful as the technology um, is catching up with what they're trying to do. And then they also play a big role in the V-weapons campaign after uh, V-1s and V-2s start getting launched against London. They play a big role in, in attacking launch sites. And and then in those last parts of the war, the, the, a lot of the focus is on attacking fuel uh, and oil t- Targets and again they play an important role in um, helping restrict um, fuel and oil, uh, making it to the German forces and, and fueling those German tanks on the front line. There was always throughout the war a, a debate about how the bomber command should best be used, wasn't there? In terms of the, the strategic bombing, which involved you know, large scale bombing against cities, but also tactical bombing to support ground forces. Just talk to me a little bit about that that tug of war that went on within the air force and and the uh, you know the results of those discussions. Yeah, well, the commander of uh, Bomber Command from early 1942 was a man named Sir Arthur Harris, and his nickname was famously Bomber Bomber Harris. And Harris was a, an advocate for for this idea of, of area bombing. Uh, he didn't come up with the policy; he inherited the policy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. See when he came came into command, bomber command, but he, he very much uh, he was very enthusiastic towards that policy, and and he he was very much an advocate of bombing those industrial and urban areas, and he didn't want to use he didn't want his bomber force to be used as a tactical air force, so he he was very reluctant to allow them to be used to help the ground forces in Europe, uh, but when asked, he was fully committed to that cause. So he, he, Eisenhower um, very much praised him as one of his um, most reliable commanders, but he uh, he didn't think the bomb, bombing force should be used for that task. 
even though um, as the war progressed and the technologies progressed, uh, uh, the, Lanca- the Lancaster equipped with uh, new new uh, bomb finding, uh, bomb aiming equipment, uh, new radar technologies and new new armaments was able to uh, hit targets such as the battleship, the Tirpitz and sink the Tirpitz and um, and destroy, uh, in, in the last year of the war, they, they destroyed Kem's, Kem's Dam, uh, breached the lock gates on the dam using a tall boy bomb. Uh, so, which is quite different from, from the early part of the war where in 1941 a report showed that um, Bomber Commander 1 in 10 aircraft weren't getting within five miles of their target. Five miles? That's extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. The, the early years of Bomber Command isn't a, um, isn't, isn't a great one in terms of, of um, any successes at all, but, um, but the, the technologies and um, equipment improve over time. Well, where do you sit in that debate, mate, between the, the importance between uh, the strategic bombing campaigns and the tactical bombing in support of uh, ground operations? Well, when you've got something as sophisticated as Lancaster and the huge investment that has gone into it, it, it doesn't make sense in these later parts of the war that it's being used to um, destroy urban centres when um, when it has the capacity to do things like you know, sink, sink the, the famous battleship Tirpitz or um, hit these precision, precision targets. So uh, I think at times over, particularly in the last 12 months of the war, it was becoming, um, it was misused in, in that role of um, attacking urban industrial areas when it could, could um, hit, hit precision targets and was doing such a good job in the lead up to Normandy by um, cutting off the, the railway links to, to supply the German, German army in Normandy. And talk to me about the controversies surrounding the, you know, the large-scale destructions of cities because particularly after the attack on Dresden, um, you know, we, we look back on it now with mixed feelings about whether it was necessary or not. I mean, obviously, it's a different lens we now employ 75 or 80 years after the fact to look at the Second World War. Talk to me a little bit about the controversy uh, surrounding you know, large-scale bombing of cities and, and, and where we, we, how we think about it today in the modern era. Well, those, um, those technical developments and tactics through 42, 43 and 44 culminated with that controversial destruction of Dresden between the 13th and 15th of February 1945. Uh, and this was over a couple of days by the RAF and, and the United States Air Force. But it is seen today as an unrestrained um, and excessive use of force. Because uh, the firestorms created in Dresden um, led to the deaths of an estimated twenty five thousand people, and and people started to feel uneasy about it at the time. And and very famously, um, Winston Churchill, uh, who was one of the great advocates of bomber command and actually played a key role in that escalation of the bombing campaign in the first place, um, he became sort of uh, commenced sort of distancing himself from bomber command, uh, and famously. Which is something that really grieved veterans is they they veterans didn't feel that um, Churchill gave them proper acknowledgement in his victory speeches at the end of the conflict. And where do you stand on it as a historian? Uh, we we do this all the time. We talk about particularly things like the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We we talk about you know large scale destruction of cities by bomber command. Where as a historian, having hopefully a, a fairly precise lens to look back on it. How do you think strategic bombing of cities, what sort of role did that play in the Second World War and, and was it necessary? Well, the decision to um, move to that area of bombing, if we need to sort of look back at the time and at the period. It occurred in the very darkest period of the war in 
February 1942. The war was going not very well for Britain at that time. Uh, they had huge setbacks in Europe, huge setbacks in uh, in North Africa and the Mediterranean. And, of course, um, the, the fall of Singapore happening in 15th of February 1942 as well. And one of the only ways that they could hit back at Germany at that time was in Bomber Command. And they made that decision to invest in Bomber Command and to, uh, and that's when that decision to move towards area, area bombing, um, took place. Uh, obviously, um, as a historian, I think, um, the, the sort of targeting of civilians and even that they're using the words like dehousing, um, which is, so they sort of use these phrases, um, that's by dehousing workers, it'll affect German industry, but I think we need to sort of look at through the lens of the total war of 1942 and the situation in 1942. And this was the measure, I guess, that the commanders and leaders at the time chose that this is how uh, we're going to have to fight an enemy such as Nazi Germany. Uh, and as the and these are the controversial decisions around a means to an end. And one thing that um, has always sort of tarnished the um, reputation of Bomber Command and, and left a complex les- legacy is that um, it caused the deaths of uh, 420,000 civilians in Germany and perhaps another 70,000 civilians across um, the occupied uh, territories in, in Netherlands and uh, Belgium um, and France. Yeah, it's certainly a difficult one, isn't it? It's I, I think we it's important, though, that we don't apply today's morals on on these decisions that were made at the time because there's no way I think we can comprehend just what it meant to be a leader in the early 1940s trying to take on the Germans the 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 Japanese the Italians you know the might of the enemy that we were facing and you know it, it seems to me that decisions that were made at the time were made in the best interest of winning the war and at the end of the day we did win the war we don't want to get too Machiavellian about it but you know everything contributed towards winning of the war in spite of the, the huge cost paid by civilians. And and certainly um, the Australians in Bomber Command themselves, because uh, they often will get asked those questions in their history interviews and they even comment sometimes in their own diaries. And they had quite sort of mixed feelings about uh, what they were doing at that stage, particularly particularly towards those uh, the end of the war after events like Dresden. Uh, uh, some were aware that they were obviously would be would be killing civilians, but they also would write that they'd seen the destruction that had been caused in London um, and other cities. Um, Arthur Doubleday, who rose through the ranks to command uh, 61 Squadron RAF, um, he, he said in a, his oral history interview that's held here at the War Memorial, said that we weren't going to win the war by any half measures, and he felt that the whole future of civilization was at stake. Uh, and that if if Britain and the Allies didn't win the war, then there'd be nothing left. And I think uh, I think sometimes when we look back on the war and know that we've won, we sometimes forget how closely run, uh, how, how close the thing it was at different stages. And um, an Allied victory uh, wasn't necessarily a certain outcome. Have you come across any public discussion about the the, the you know the morals of of bombing of civilians at the time during the war? Was there, was there ever press articles about it or, or a public discussion questioning whether this was the right thing to do during the war? Yeah, that's a really, um, that's a really good question, Matt, because we sort of, uh, we know that there was uh, criticisms of Bomber Command sort of developed uh, after the conflict, but during the war, the Bomber Command was very much celebrated and there were a few voices in Britain um, questioning 
uh, the, uh, the, the policies around, um, bombing cities. But for example, when, uh, when news of the bombing of Hamburg, uh, in 1942, which, sorry, 1943, uh, created a huge firestorm, uh, perhaps 40,000 people in, in Hamburg were killed during, um, that long, long campaign over a week of bombing Hamburg. Civilians in Britain were celebrating that news, um, by and large, and so were elements of the press. And, and even after the bombing of Dresden, uh, there's some newspaper reports, some newspapers in Australia celebrating the destruction of Dresden, uh, in their reporting. And, uh, and they, they even acknowledge that Dresden was known as a, a center that had of, you know, great center of civilization with, um, fantastic art galleries and museums and, a huge um, heritage with the medieval bu- buildings, but it said, but their tone was very much well. This is the second uh, war we've had with this nation in the last, um, yeah, last thirty years, and they've, yeah, and they very much put the blame back on on the Nazis and those who support the Nazi Party, and, and sort of say, well, this is this is what's coming to you, and if this is what's going to end the war, then this is what's going to end the war. So it's, it can be hard for us looking back from. Uh, more than 75 years on to sort of think that some, uh, you know, previous generations might have felt that way, but they're living through the Second World War in living memory at this time. Yeah, it's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating chapter of the, of the war to, to look into. And uh, when we're talking about the experience of Australians and the huge casualties, one of the things we shouldn't overlook is that the term casualties also includes men taken prisoner. And that was a pretty big part of the experience for, for bomber command crews, wasn't it? Because if their aircraft was shot down and they survived, they were, you know, most most cases over in enemy territory. They had a very good chance of being taken prisoner. Is that a, is that part of your research, looking at the experience of prisoners who uh, who had flown with bomber command? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, uh, being shot down, uh, many many became prisoners of war. Some were lucky enough to to evade capture, and some often with the help of local resistance movements were able to make it back to Britain. But uh, hundreds of Australian members of Bomber Command, we don't know the exact numbers, but we know that over 1,000 members of the Royal Australian Air Force became prisoners of war of the Germans in the Second World War. And they have an interesting experience as as prisoners of war, uh, particularly in the last months of war, because many of them are held in camps in what's modern-day Poland, and and they're evacuated from their camps ahead of the, the Soviet advance. And through those winter months, sometimes for seven or eight weeks. So they're marching daily in the cold uh, without very little food or supplies. Um, and it's a very, very difficult time uh, for, for those prisoners of war in those final months of the war. By and large, prisoners of the Germans had a better experience than the Japanese, though, you would uh, you would estimate. Oh, yes. The, um, certainly the, the, the death rates for prisoners of war in Europe, Australian prisoners of war in Europe, is about 3.5% by comparison to the one third of prisoners of the Japanese who, who were killed, uh, who, who died as prisoners of war. But th- that, that measure in itself doesn't necessarily reflect how harsh the conditions were too in, in camps in Germany. Um, it's hard to draw comparisons. Um, but, uh, but one thing we, we don't know exactly, it would take a full audit of, um, of our role of honor, which, which is, um, which is possible, but, uh, is how many, and, and this is something we're becoming more aware of with the digitization of records and particularly the repatriation files is we're finding that there's more and more guys we're starting to realize were shot down, uh, survived being shot down. Uh, they were originally listed as missing, believed killed in action. And we're starting to find that they were actually captured and then were murdered 
by the SS or the Gestapo um, after capture. And so they were never actually listed as prisoners of war. So then these, these are men who, who aren't part of our prisoner of war statistics that, you know, go back to the Second World War, but very much are prisoners of war. So this is an area that we, we were starting to know more and more, learn more and more about as we look through the data that's now becoming available through the digitization of records on the National Archives, but something we don't know the exact numbers of how many um, airmen in Europe uh, face this, um, you know, really awful fate. Yeah, just terrible, isn't it? The, um, the Probably the one of the most important artefacts and well-known artefacts in the Australian War Memorial Collection is that Lancaster bomber, the famous G for George. Tell us a little bit about G for George, and I'm particularly interested in your relationship with G for George, since it, it's it's such a tangible representation of everything that Bomber Command went through. Yes, well, um, G for George uh, flew with 460 Squadron, um, the famous Australian squadron of the Second World War, one of the famous ones in Europe, and uh, survived 89 operations uh, during the war. Uh, it makes George a, a really great survivor. Uh, those who flew with George felt felt it was um, felt it was a lucky aircraft. And after the war, George flew the long journey via the United States back to Australia, where it raised uh, money for the war effort. And then at the end of the war, it became part of the War Memorial's collection and has um, and has been adored by uh, multiple generations uh, in the seventy five years since the the end of the Second World War. It is a great survivor because. If you think about the statistics, so 7,000 Lancasters are, are produced during the war. More than half of these Lancasters are destroyed in the war. This is either in, in combat or just in, in crashes. And so George is one of only um, a handful of Lancasters that survive today and still left, still in the world, still in museums. And it's only one of three that flew in combat. And in my role in researching and writing about Bomber Command, Chief for George represents uh, the memory of all Australians who served in in Bomber Command, and it's uh, as as a historian working at the memorial, um, you know, it's a great honour to be working with something that is um, so important to so many people uh, across Australia. I think we're actually very lucky as Australians because our our contribution to Bomber Command is very well remembered in these artefacts because the other famous Lancaster in a museum is the one in the Royal Air Force Museum in London, S for Sugar, which was also flown by Australians a lot of the time. So the Australian contribution to Bomber Command is is very well remembered in these amazing aircraft that have been preserved. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. And Australian Bomber Command veterans are really proud that um, two of the famous Lancasters in museums in Britain uh, S for Sugar, as you mentioned, in the RF Museum in London, but also the um, the fuselage of Fred the Fox at the Imperial War Museum is also um, from an Australian squadron, and Australian veterans are always really proud of that. And Fred the Fox and S for Sugar, um, uh, amongst their missions, they famously flew on on D Day as well. Absolutely brilliant, mate. Just finishing up now. If people want more information about Bomber Command, is there, are there some recommended reading you could give people or documentaries they should should watch? Where should people go if they want to learn more about Australia's story in Bomber Command? Well, uh, I think the um, I would say the best book on the Australians in Bomber Command, if um, if audiences can get their hands on it, is um, that by Hank Nelson, uh, written uh, published in about two thousand two. Chased by the Sun is the title of that book, and uh, gives a great account of. The background of the crews and the journeys they made um, to fly with Bomber Command. But um, I should say too that for visitors, um, uh, for those who, who think you're visiting the War Memorial, there's a great chance across the summer to come and see uh, G for George and the current display we have in Anzac Hall. 
which will is still on display through the summer months um, ahead of um, the, the eventual redevelopment of the memorial. Well, it's been really great, Lockie. Thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show, and I would recommend to everyone that they, uh, when they're in Canberra, that they go and see obviously the uh, not just the Bomber Command displays at the War Memorial, but the entire Australian War Memorial as well, because it's always wonderful work that you and your team of historians do there, mate. So, mate, thank you very much for coming on and talking about Bomber Command. It's an important story and uh, and one that I'm sure everyone will be uh, delighted to have heard about. Oh, it was a pleasure. Any time, Matt. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.